Welcome to the Forward Church Weekly Podcast. This week's sermon is from the series, The Coming Rescue. For more information about Forward, giving, or to request prayer, visit www.forwardchurchfamily.com. To call his wife over, who actually is kind of hosting a party of her own, and he wants to parade her around for them. The only problem was is the queen wasn't having it that day. And she didn't want to be prated around. And there's, you know, there's multiple reasons. Multiple scholars can tell you why. Um, but the reality is that she didn't do what the king was saying. And the king was outraged. And, and of course, the men around the king, they're concerned too. Because they're like, if the king's wife can refuse him, there may not be food on the table when I get home. All right? they, they're concerned about what's going to go on in their own household. So they're saying, king, you've got you to put her in her place. Okay? I feel like the mood in the room, I really need to make it clear that this is King, King Xerxes saying this. This is not the thoughts of Forward Church, okay? I'm speaking from King Xerxes' place, okay? Tension needs to be removed a little bit. Um, but so King Xerxes says, that's right, we can't have this. And over the course of time, he ends up removing her queenship. He removes the crown from her. But the only problem is now he doesn't have a queen. So... Over time, he thinks it's going to be a great idea, and some people talk to him about it, and he decides to host basically like a, a beauty pageant, um, a beauty pageant or a, a contest basically to present all the young women before him, the prettiest, the smartest, the brightest before him, and then he gets his pick. Of those women is Esther, a slave girl. And, and when you look at this, the book of Esther, Esther actually doesn't have, um, well, she's in exile. She's not a slave, but she's in exile. And the book of Esther doesn't actually have um, an author, we can maybe attribute it to Mordecai, which happens to be Esther's cousin, um, older cousin that raised her. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm going to make a case for Walt Disney, maybe, because you got, you got Queen Esther, right? Or you've got Esther who is in a household, and what did I just say? Her parents weren't around. I mean, this is sounding very Disney-ish. So she's, she's exile in a land that isn't her own. She's got um, mom and dad aren't around. Her cousin is raising her. And then she gets the opportunity to go before the king because she's very pretty. And she gets to put before the king. And over time, because um, the, all the women go before and there's a selection process. And then they go get, um, the word escapes me, manny's, petties, when do over, make, makeover. That's the word. That's the one. Okay. Makeover, so they, they, it's like a, but it's a long makeover, like a month long or a couple month makeover is what these women get. And then they go before the king. So they go before the king and Esther is up in front of him. And he, the response from, king, from the king is found in Esther 2.17. It says, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight and, and then all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. What a story. So he gets up, puts the crown on her head. She has now gone from Jewish exile girl to the queen of Persia. All right? And, and if it were a Disney story, from here it would probably be, you'd hear like happily ever after. And all she needs is like an animal sidekick for pep talks and comic relief. And you've got a Disney story. But that's not really where the story ends. That's just the beginning of the story. And I want you to know, if you've found Jesus Christ in your life, if you are a new Christian, you need to understand this isn't the end of your story. This is the beginning of your story. And for Esther, she finds herself at the beginning of the story. Shortly after this, her cousin that raised her, Mordecai, overhears a plot to kill the king. 
He hears two men discussing it, and then he turns it in, and the next thing you know, those men get arrested. Mordecai, it's written down, it's recorded what he has done for the king, but there's no celebration. But, he's, but he's, it's recorded, and then that's pretty much all you see about that for, from there. And then you have Haman. So this enters your, your antagonist. Okay, Haman, you start to see him talked about in chapter 3. Haman is promoted by the king to be in a position that's like prime minister. He is second in all the kingdom. He actually oversees a lot of the kingdom. And, his, um, and the Haman is actually a descendant um, of, of the Amalekites. Okay, if you remember Agog, this is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is told, King Saul, so early in, in, so you're talking centuries before what we're talking about now, King Saul is told to take out these Amalekites. And he's told to take out King Agog. But he left a remnant. He left some of them. If you remember, this is a story where the prophet actually had to step in and stab this guy. It's, it's pretty crazy. So check out 1 Samuel 15 um, if you want to check that out. Write that down. But here you have descendants of that time letting us know that Saul did not do what God told him to. He was not faithful in what God had told him to do. So now you have these descendants. And Haman was actually one of those descendants of the Amalekite people. He was called an uh, Agagite. So now you have Amon or Haman, who, is, who has something against the Jews. So he's got a deep-seated hate over a period of time because he, um, he knows about that heritage. So the king promotes, he promotes Haman, gives him all this authority, but um, Esther chapter 3, 5 through 6 says, um, says that when Haman saw Mordecai, well, first of all, the king told everyone that they have to bow down when Haman comes around. That was, the, that was the decree. So when Haman came around, everyone bowed down to him. So when he went out into the cities, everyone would bow to him because of his authority, except for one, and that was Mordecai. So Esther 3, 5 through 6 says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So now you see a plot to kill not just one man, but to kill all the Jews living in the land of Persia. A decree goes out, or it's getting ready to go out. Then you see something crazy in Esther 3.7. This is Esther 3.7. It says, In the month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, they, passed, they cast pure. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Okay, that doesn't mean they were cast them for twelve months. There was a calendar on the ground, and they were basically, these pure were like dice. Some, some of them were made out of bones, some of them were made out of um, rocks, and they were shaped um, to different shapes, and they would just cast them out. And what they were doing were casting them on basically like a calendar to see, um, you know, you have Jewish people, their fate's already sealed. They're just trying to figure out a good day for it. What day looks good? I don't know. Let's go ahead and cast lots for it. So they're just casting these lots, trying to decide a day to kill all these people. Not just any people, God's people. Now, if I were to tell you that not only were you doomed to die, but people are over there rolling dice on when they plan on killing you, that does seem like our lives are nothing but chance. This point of the picture, it just seems like we are all just left to chance. What hope is there when people are just rolling the dice on when they're going to kill me? And that's what you see here, just, just rolling the dice, just a game of chance. That's all it is, is chance. So 
once they decide on the day, it's going to be 11 months from when they're doing it. So you've got about 11 months, and they put out a decree for the Jews to see. Everyone sees it. So they put a decree throughout Persia that on this day, 11 months from now, we're going to kill all the Jews. So everyone sees this. The Jews are in panic. Mordecai is in panic, and he needs to tell Queen Esther because she doesn't seem to be getting involved or anything. So what he does is he then puts on sackcloth because that draws attention apparently. And then uh, and he goes out and he starts wailing in the streets trying to get her attention. So people that knew her went out and told her. Now, she, you got to think, she's probably thinking she's living her happily ever after time. But there's a reason God put her where he put her. So then you have... Um, you have Mordecai telling her about the plot. And her first response is, is, what can I do about it? You know that I can't go before the king. Because that custom was, is yes, she was queen, and yes, she had found favor, but on a bad day, he could still have her killed in an instant. All, all someone had to do to get killed by the king was go into his presence, into his courts, without, without uh, being summoned. So if you went to him without being summoned, basically the, the penalty was execution, unless he put out his scepter. If you put out a scepter, it meant that he was welcoming you in. But she w- there was no guarantee that that was going to happen for her. Okay? The relationship did not look like they do to us between husband and wife. Okay? So he, they didn't see each other on a regular basis. So for her to come, you didn't, she didn't go to him unless he summoned her. So she's saying, this is a risk. I don't, know if, I don't know if I can do this. But then, if I can find it, chapter 4 somewhere. So in chapter 4, you see where he goes to, uh, Mordecai responds to her, and he says, if all your people, he, said, he says that if, if you don't do this, then God will bring salvation through some other route. He says, but if you, but if you continue with this, and you do not, if you do not decide to step in and intervene, then don't make any mistake, you and your family will perish. Your, your father's family, his descendants, will perish. And so he makes, this, he makes this very broad statement to her, but then he responds to this, who knows that, that, I've, that God has brought you here. He doesn't say God. He said, but who knows that you were placed here for such a time as this? For such a time as this. So he's telling her, and then her response to this, when he tells her, this is um, four, chapter 4, verses 16, right around there, her response is, is that I'll go to the king, but first she says, hey, why don't you all go fast? <laughs> you all fast first. So she tells them to go fast first, and then from there, she says, I'll go before the king, and if I die, I die. She says, if I perish, I perish. So here you have Queen Esther first saying, I don't want any part of it. But then after Mordecai speaks to her and is able to respond back and forth, and they're not talking face-to-face here. They just keep having messengers going back and forth like, like a game of telephone or something, going back and forth. So then her final word is, is, if I perish, I'll perish. So she gathers the nerve after some fasting to go before the king. She takes her chances. After fasting, she takes her chances, and that's important to note. She invites the king and Haman to, to a dinner. So she goes to the king and she says, and when she walks in to the king, he sees her and it's the moment of truth to what's going to happen. She's, she's prayed up, she's fasted up, she's got people fasting for her and she steps into the king's presence and when he sees her, he puts his scepter out, accepting her. And then he says, what is your wish? He tells her he'll give her everything up to half of the kingdom, whatever she wants. And she says, 
I want you to, I want to prepare a banquet for you, for you and for Haman. So she goes to, so then it's like, well, you had your moment. Why didn't you use your moment? But instead she plans a dinner. So the next night, Haman comes to the dinner. Um, the king comes to the dinner. They, they have dinner together. And then the king then, again, gives her a second, a second time. He presents it to her. He says, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And you know what her response is? I want you to come to dinner tomorrow night, you and Haman. And it's kind of interesting. You're looking at this like, why? why is she waiting? Why is she waiting? You clearly have the king's favor, but then she waits. So then later that night, Mordecai goes to leave. He's leaving there, and he's filled, he's happy, he's been in the presence of the king, he's in the presence of the queen, all good things. Nothing but good things going on, but when he leaves, this happens. Esther 5, 9, it says, And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Filled with wrath against him. It just lets you know, like, he's been hanging out, he's got people bowing down to him, he's got the king hanging out, having dinner with the king, the queen inviting him over, but he just can't handle one person not liking him. I mean, he has some serious self-confidence issues. One quote on self-confidence that I like is, self-confidence isn't knowing everyone will like you. Self-confidence is knowing it's okay if they don't. And I think for us as God's people, we should understand that God is for us. We don't have to have everyone liking us. Romans 8.31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? In other words, does it matter? And I think most people, when they look at this, they're like, well, of course, I don't have to have people like me. I know I don't have to have people liking me. Okay, but what if you take out that quote? What if I remove the word like to agree? Self-confidence is knowing that is not knowing everyone will agree with you, but self-confidence is knowing it's okay if they don't. Okay, because if I get on Facebook right now, I can look at a lot of Christians that are struggling with the fact that not everyone believes in everything they believe in. And I don't know where in the world we came up with the concept that, that everyone should believe everyone or everyone will believe everything that we believe. I think we've been pampered in the United States and maybe part of a Bible Belt, but we've been pampered in, this United, in the United States, one nation under God, where we have a feeling where everyone believes in us. Then all of a sudden we have social media and we realize people don't and we just flip out over it. Okay, the reason God puts you here in the United States might be because there's a lot of people that don't agree with what you had to say about Jesus Christ and he's wanting to use you for that. So I just want to bring that in mind. That's not the main point of the sermon, but this is just something that cracked me up. Just Mordecai, he cannot get over. He's got everything going for him, but he cannot get over one person not bowing to him. He can't get over this one person and he just struggles with this. Esther 5.13 says, he just, he go, well, he goes in, um, chapter 5, he goes into, after seeing Mordecai, he goes and consults with his wife and his friends and just starts telling them about everything good that he's done, how awesome he is, and he's just trying to pour out. And then, and then he talks about, I, I'm even hanging out with the king and queen, but then he says this, Esther 5.13, yet all this is worth nothing to me so as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I can't even enjoy my good food because of this guy. I can't even enjoy um, a, good, a good time with my wife. I can't even enjoy walking around in the kingdom because I know this guy isn't bowing down to me. And he's just letting it completely frustrate him. So his wife comes to him and his friends, and they come up with a good idea to, to make a gallows to hang Mordecai on um, 50 or 60 feet in the air. It's uh, 50 cubits up in the air. This is Esther 514. But they put it, put it high up in the air. But the thing is, is he wasn't the only one losing sleep that night because the king was having trouble sleeping as well. 
the king can't sleep and he's trying to sleep and he can't do it and he can't do it so he does, does the best thing he can do and he calls in the scribes to read some of the recordings of the kingdom to help him sleep. I guess that'd be kind of scary if I knew that the leader just like, hey, read, read about our history so I can go to sleep. But anyway, so he has them do this. So they start reading the recordings and as they're reading to him, they talk about the story of Mordecai and how Mordecai discovered a plot to kill the king and how Mordecai didn't stay silent and how Mordecai went out and, and, brought the, and basically told everyone and, and was able to spoil the plot to kill the king. And the king said, have we done anything for Mordecai? Is it recorded? Did we celebrate him? Did we reward him? And the scribe said, no, we haven't done anything. So then the next day, so it's the next morning. The king really hasn't slept. Haman hasn't slept. So the king wants to honor Mordecai, and, and he looks up, and he's thinking about what he could do to, to honor Mordecai, and he looks up, and he said, who's at the king's gate? And they said, it's Haman. So he says, have him come in here. So Haman comes in, and he says, what would I do? What should I do if, if the king wants to honor somebody? What do you think should be done for them? And Haman, of course, thinking that it's for him, says, oh, you should, we should put the king's clothes on him. We should let him ride the king's horse. We should parade him about around the city talking about how awesome he is. And he just goes on and on. And the king said, that sounds awesome. I want you to do that for Mordecai. And all of a sudden, this is like the beginning of the end for Haman. And Haman goes just sulking, goes to his wife, and she's like, yeah, that's the end of you, basically, is what she says. She's like, if this is the man from the Jews, then you're, you're basically finished, is what she says. So now you have this going on. So then from all that, what do they have going on that night? They got a dinner, they got dinner plans, right? So then they go to, um, to Esther's dinner. A lot, a lot has changed. A lot has happened overnight in that day. And they go to Esther, and the king says for the third time, this is the third time he's offered her half of his kingdom. And she says, oh, king, if we were just going to be made slaves, I wouldn't say anything. But me and my people, our entire existence is being threatened right now. And she exposes herself as a Jew. She takes a, a leap of faith, and she exposes herself as a Jew. And he said, who would do this thing? And she said, this vile Haman. And so here Haman is being exposed, and the king is so mad, he walks out, and Haman begins to plea and plea, and then he does, he falls on the king's wife, he falls on Esther, just as the king's walking back in, it doesn't look good, and the king says, not only have you done this, you're now assaulting my wife in my presence. And the very, the very gallows that was made for Mordecai, they then hung Haman on. This whole story is summed up in what later, they have a feast, and they put a feast together, and and they decide to celebrate because not only this, because the decree was still out. And once the, once the king puts his signet ring on a decree, it can't be reversed. But so the decree is still out to kill all the Jews. So the king says, what do you want done? And so Mordecai says, we need to give them the ability to defend themselves. So they gave them, they put out the decree and they said, all Jews are allowed to defend themselves. And, and so now you have instead of, and you got to think for 11 months, People have probably been trash-talking the Jews. For 11 months, people have been talking about their demise and how their time has come. So through that 11 months, they're able to pick out all their enemies. Their enemies are clearly seen throughout this time. So instead of on the day that they were going to be annihilated, instead, they, a decree goes out for them to defend themselves, and they were able to destroy all their enemies in Persia. And some of it even stretched out a couple days beyond that. And it was such... An incredible time that Mordecai says, we're going to have a feast on this day for now on. And what they decided to call the feast 
is in Esther chapter 9, 26. Is therefore they call these days Purim, after the term pure, after the term lots, like rolling the dice. In other words, the title of my sermon was pulled from this, We Like Our Chances. We like our chances. God's people like their chances. When we see what it feels like God is in the distance, this, through this whole book, you see the name of God not mentioned once. But his work, his providence is seen clearly through the entire book. Everything that he has done, there is no chances when you are walking with God. The, the, the workings that God has done are incredible. I thought about it would be cool if someone wrote a book. I'm never going to write a book, so you all just go ahead and whoever, anyone with a big imagination, you can do this and just... If you're lucky, I'll see you later on in life because it did well. But it would be awesome to write a book about someone who's passed away and then an angel shows them like a picture of their whole life and shows them all the times that they intervened, that God intervened on their behalf, but then, um, but that they didn't see. That'd be, that'd be a cool. There, take that and run with it. All right, so, because that's what our lives will be like. All the things, all the inner workings that God will do in our lives that we don't see, but he is working in us. Think about all the things in this story that looked like chance, just sheer chance, just a roll of the dice, just a sheer chance. What, what are all, all the things? First, did it look like Esther just became queen by chance? I think she felt like it did. She's just, I mean, the, her people are being, you know, going to be executed and she doesn't even know about it. She's just sitting, kind of living the good life. And I think sometimes we get like that as Christians. We kind of put ourselves in a bubble. And that's what she was. She was just living in a bubble. She didn't even know what was going on with our people. And as Christians, we start to get ourselves in a bubble. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. But sometimes we're not of the world and we're not in the world. We're just kind of in our own bubble. And I feel like sometimes we need to understand that God called us to be Christians to the world, not from the world. And it's so important that we understand that when we look at her, she is in this bubble and it takes Mordecai coming to her and saying, don't you think maybe there was a reason God put you in this place? Don't you think maybe there's a reason God has, God, everyone, all your people are suffering and you're sitting in here? Don't you think maybe there's a reason that for, through coronavirus, people around you lost jobs, but you kept your income going the whole way? Do you think that maybe there's a reason when people are sick and we're not? Do you think maybe there's a reason that you are in church today? It's not by chance. It's not just a roll of the dice. And he has to point that out to her. And there's a reason I don't look at this. I've heard so many sermons on for such a time as this, 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 for such a time as this. And I'm like, that's great. And I love those sermons. And those sermons have all spoke to me in my life. But when I look at this thing, I think that we get caught on this such a time as this moment being this like, we're going to save a hundred people. Um, God has called us there on this pinnacle. And, and it's this big do or die, life or death situation. But the reality is, is that our for such a time as this moment comes every single day. Every single day, we're present with the ability to minister to somebody, with the ability to, to speak good words to somebody, to encourage somebody. Let's say I encourage one person every single day. Let's say I pray for one person every single day. Let's say that, um, I don't know, maybe I go to work trying to display, have God on display and try to do the best of my ability. Um, just like Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. Let's say I'm give, living that sort of life, impacting the people around me. Over the course of a year, I've had 365 opportunities 
to give the gospel. I've had 365 opportunities to say something nice to somebody. I've impacted possibly 365 people. If it's separate people every day, maybe it's a lot of the same people, but still you've got 365 opportunities, but a lot of us miss out on 365 opportunities because we're waiting for one such a time as this moment. And God is saying, speaking of chance, it wasn't by chance or by accident that I woke you up this morning, but I woke you up because I want you to see the moments that I have put every single day so that you are for God, that you could live for God. It wasn't an accident that he woke you up. He woke you up with purpose. He woke you up for a reason. And I love how she says, verse 16, chapter four, verse 16, I will go to the king even though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. I'll take my chances. I'll take my chances. Say it. Say, I'll take my chances. Come on, wake up. We'll take our chances. We are people that should understand that when we take chances for God, we have got the power of heaven behind us. We're not taking our chances as much as we think. Do you think that it was an accident that Mordecai heard about the plot? Do you think those people were just yelling it out? I mean, do you think that if you had a plot to kill the king, you would keep it quiet? But it wasn't by chance that Mordecai overheard them. God put him in the right place at the right time. A lot of us would have been out after that, though. It's like, because he didn't get celebrated right away. It had been a while. He, he, he discovered a plot. He wasn't recognized. A lot of us would just give up on that point. God doesn't even care about me because I didn't get recognized for the good things that I did. Mordecai still waits it out, still waits it out. And then God does it in perfect timing. That, that's incredible. Was it an accident that Esther delayed the first time? Instead of telling the king, when she went into his presence, she said, I'll have you over for dinner. Then the next time, it's like, oh, surely she's going to do it now. And then she does it again. And you're like, well, is she just nervous? I think that through prayer and through fasting gives us patience and wisdom when to say things. And she had wisdom enough. For some reason, God wanted her to delay one more night. And a lot happened that night, right? Haman built the gallows. The king wouldn't let, or um, God wouldn't let Xerxes sleep. And a lot happened that night. The king's, do you think that it was by chance that he had trouble sleeping? No, God's hand was in all of this. This is not a game of chance. Our lives are not just left to chance. God's hand is on us. And we do sometimes roll the dice. But if we roll the dice, here's what I want you to think about. I read recently... Um, in a book, and I thought it was great, um, Urban McManus pointed this out. This is, second, or this is Genesis 2, 16 through 17. Um, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must, eat, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If, when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So from the very beginning, man was given two choices. Or was he given two choices? He was given a choice not to eat from this tree, or he said, you can eat from all these trees. So if we're playing a game of dice, we're looking at only one number that we can't roll, only one, only one combination that we can't roll, and all the rest are good. And that's the way that I've been challenged recently to live my life a different, differently, to view things differently, because a lot of times I find myself weighing in on all the things that could go bad. But God says, live your life knowing that my hand is on it. 
It's pretty simple. All you have to do is not eat from that tree. In other words, all you have to do is get in my word, follow my word, pray to me, seek my face, and I have got endless opportunity for you. You can go here, and I'll bless you. You can go here, and I'll bless you. You can eat from this tree, and I'll bless you. You can go to this college, and I'll bless you. You can go work here, and I'll bless you. All you have to do is seek my face. It's not by chance. It's by the hand of God, whose hand is on us, working as we make decisions for our lives. He is with us in those decisions, and all we have to do is follow him. Now, are there some decisions that are going to make monetary differences in our life? Absolutely. There's going to be some decisions, but the reality is, is your happiness and the people around you's salvation has nothing to do with how much money you're making. The chances on your kids remaining in church after they graduate has nothing to do with whether you're able to buy them a new car when they're 16 or pay for their college. But I'll tell you what it has a lot to do with, how much time you spend in the Word, how much time you live for Christ, and how much time you spread the gospel, how much time they see that servant heart in you. Those are things, and that doesn't take take money. That just takes a heart for God. And God says, if you just live for me, you have all these opportunities that I will bless in your life. It's not a game of chance. We don't live a game of chance. God is with us, and he is for us. So just seize your such a time as this moment every single day. Take your chances, because God is with you. One last thing that I want to bring up is the king holding that scepter out. We see Esther go before the king, and the reality is that all of us one day will stand before a king who has the ability and every right to either send us to hell or offer us grace. And all that depends on whether we have chosen, whether we have decided to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. So as we see this picture of a king that can hold out or offer grace or give us what we've been pursuing all along, which is a life without him, if we, if we don't receive Jesus Christ, basically what we get in eternity is going to be what we pursued on this earth. If we pursue Jesus on earth, we get heaven through eternity. If we pursue a life without Jesus on this earth, that's what we get through eternity, and that just happens to be hell. Complete darkness away from Jesus, and that solely depends on your decision to follow Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that today, then I don't believe it's an accident you're here. I don't believe it's a game of chance. I believe God has orchestrated that. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, we love you so much, and we just thank you for your love. We thank you for your hope, and, and Father, we thank you that this is just not random chance. This isn't random accident, but your hand is on our lives. Your hand is on the inner workings of our day-to-day activity. Your hand is on um, what's going on today, and you are shaping our futures, Father. We pray for the future of our country, but anything you want to do in the country, I 100% believe that it will start in our hearts first and in your people. So first, do your work within our hearts. Do your work within your people, within your church, so that we then can go out into this country and, and through you, Father, through your Holy Spirit, breathe life into this nation. We ask, God, that you will be with us, Father. Anyone who is questioning who they are, in you, anyone is questioning or about to give up, Father, we ask for just an outpouring of your Holy Spirit on them in this time. You have provided so many avenues of success and so many avenues of hope and blessing in our life, Father, and we just pray that we will walk in your will. We pray that we stick to the, the basics of seeking your face 
and studying your word and getting on our knees before you and saying, Lord, heal our land. Lord God, we thank you so much. We know you're not done in this place. We know that you still have work to do throughout this last song, Father. And we ask that, I ask that everyone just gives everything to you. You are so worth it, Father. You are worth everything. You took all the chance. You took, you took the gamble. You took the greatest risk of all so that we can walk boldly understanding that life is not a game of chance. And because of that, because you were willing to risk it all for us, Father, we understand that you are worth it all. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Forward Church Weekly Podcast. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our series, The Coming Rescue. For more information about Forward, giving, or to request prayer, visit www.forwardchurchfamily.com.